Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour podcast, a recording of live conversations with public health experts on the most important global health issues. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies. We're a global health organization and we're reimagining public health. At Vital Strategies, we believe that public health is everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. That means clean air and water, access to medicine and quality care, healthy food and places to get exercise, and removing bias and discrimination in healthcare. Here on the Public Health Power Hour, we get together to look at how the world around us shapes our health and how we can shape the environment so that everyone everywhere has the potential for great health. And if you want to join our conversations live, please follow us on Twitter under the handle VitalStrat. Welcome, everyone, to the Public Health Power Hour, a weekly clubhouse meetup to discuss the relationship between personal health and public health. And to us, public health really means everything great health possible. It means clean air and water. It means access to medicines and healthy foods and places to get exercise. And it also means uh, culture. Uh, and it means removing barriers to health like bias that keep people from getting care or seeking care. And we know this has never been a more important conversation. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has shown us we have so much more to do to protect pe people's health. My name's Steve Hamill. I started my career going door to door, talking to people about health, environmental rights, and students' rights. And um, after about 10,000 conversations and a number of years, um, I moved into advocacy, advertising, and digital communications. And now I work at Vital Strategies, um, as Vice President for Communication. Um, and I love working here because we are working around the world to improve public health. We have incredible partners, some of which are on the call today, both in the audience and on stage. And we remain really deeply committed to that experience of having conversations with people, understanding the perspectives, people's lived experience, and how we can address health um, from that perspective. And we started this clubhouse to try and build the community of people who want to reimagine public health so that it's closer to the center of commerce and social life and civic life. And we're here today to learn about different areas of public health, to listen to and share the different perspectives. Each week we have a different focus topic, but we also try and look at the big picture. Um, we've had fantastic discussions. Last week we had a great active discussion on cycling and active transport. We featured Princess Dina Mirad and others on women's health. We marked the 50th year of the war on drugs. And we've got some great upcoming discussions next week on big oil, tobacco, and food, uh, how they use advertising to gaslight consumers, and a fantastic upcoming show on um, how researchers can advance health equity in the design and development and implementation and publication of their research. And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover, drop us an email at powerhour at vitalstrategies.org. But I'm excited to to talk to our colleagues today. I do want to note that we see these weekly chats as a way of engaging an open dialogue. All the speakers are participating in their personal capacity and their statements on the show represent their personal points of view. We are recording this show um, to promote uh, as a as you know offline, off the live format. And if you speak, um, we may use your comments in a future recording. But before we get to the main topic of NCDs and COVID, and we're trying a new interactive segment, Health News of the Week. And I'm going to stay off mute and try and facilitate this. But maybe first I'll ask some of our colleagues who are on stage and I will um, introduce them in the main story. But to ask if they'd like to start by sharing a story that they've identified. Um, Nina Renshaw, would you like to share a new story that caught your eye this week? Um, yeah, sure. Hi, Steve. Hi, everybody. Um, nice to be here. Um, I mean, what's been top of my mind this week, so I'm not sure if uh, people in other parts of the world will have seen, but the last week has seen really devastating flooding across Europe, so especially Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands. There have been rivers bursting their banks and, you know, sweeping away buildings and chunks of entire villages um and the toll of that is at least 200 people have lost their lives and there are you know hundreds more still missing so coupled with i mean we're seeing 
enormous forest fires as well in Siberia. The irony is, you know, this is usually the coldest place or the coldest inhabited place in the world in winter, but there, you know, climate change is having its effects uh, like manifest more rapidly than anywhere else almost. And, you know, we're seeing that the air as a result of those forest fires in that area. And I know in New York, you're experiencing similar in the moment is, uh, you know, horrendously, horrendously toxic and dangerous to health. So that's what's front of my mind also, because looking ahead, we're coming up on the Global Climate Summit this November, which is being hosted by the UK. And we're coming up on some really important elections in Europe as well. So Angela Merkel is uh, leaving office as chancellor in Germany, there's going to be a federal election there in September. So just hoping that, you know, voters across Europe, especially are going to draw some of these threads together and put pressure on their policymakers to actually act on climate change. Now, it, it really doesn't look like it. This comes at a time when, you know, we're looking at the subsidies, the kind of bailout packages that governments have been handing out to help industries recover from COVID and fossil fuels industries and polluters have been the biggest beneficiaries. So it doesn't look at the moment like our governments are going to get us out of this kind of death spiral around climate change. So um, sorry to start on a bleak note, but this is absolutely what's been, uh, yeah top of my mind this week. Thank you for sharing and touching up on, you know, like a key theme of what we try and do here, which is recognize that health isn't everything. Climate action is health action. And uh, Anupam, would you like to share an article that caught your eye this week? Um, hi, Steve. Thank you. And uh, hi, everybody. Yes, uh, I mean, working in the NCDs, I kept an eye open. You know, my eyes always open to any articles on NCDs. So uh, one thing that was very India-specific since I work in India is the increase in um, non-NCD-related neurological disorders in India. There was a study over the last 30 years, and it showed that uh, NCD-related neurological disorders had increased and uh, had in fact doubled over this period, while those due to communicable diseases had come down to 25%. And the most common uh, neurological disorders was, uh, one of them was strokes, and the most common risk factors, as we know, for NCDs is high blood pressure, high sugar, air pollution, dietary risks, and high body and obesity. So just reinforce the importance of the work we do. We are working very closely on hypertension in India. So it really reinforces and brings home the importance of the work we are doing in the country. Yes, thanks so much. And I love seeing the, you know, articles coming out of the Lancet and other peer-reviewed journals that, that are leaning on evidence. Uh, we're coming up on time. I'm going to ask uh, Labram to finish us out. Labram, was there a, a news article that caught your eye this week? Yes, sure. Thank you very much. Um, and I'm happy to be here. Um, it's actually um, something that has to do with myself. Um, so there's this story um, on social media, um, which went viral. Um, it has to do with a popular rapper, a singer, um, by name Sakodie. Um, so if some Ghanaian colleagues are here, they will definitely know who I'm speaking about. So um, he featured himself on social media smoking, you know, cigarettes or let's say tobacco. And um, and because he's went viral, and um, had a lot of you know youth uh, followers following him, and um, we all know the influence that celebrities have on the youth. So um, we issue a press release, and um, which also has gone very viral and trending as I speak to you now. A um, lot of interviews have been granted, and um, the media um, is divided into two, especially the entertainment pundits um, who who come on radio, you know, to speak about some of this issue. Um, some are in support of the act and saying that it's just, you know, I mean, for the fun of it, you know, um, um, musicians are into business. So, I mean, I mean, they don't, they don't mind about whether it has to do with public health or, or whatever. But of course, we also had the opportunity of speaking to the media and, um, and um, basically speaking about the fact that, uh, you know, and the, the celebrities has a lot of influence um, on, on our youth. The singer should come out to, to apologize. And um, also taking the opportunity to, you know, advance public health um, among the public with respect to alcohol control, as well as the industry, you know, um, interferences in public health policies. And then also, you know, um, encouraging the youth to desist from such an act, um, even though it is one of their idol that is smoking. They should see it. They should not see it as a, as a, you know, as as, as a lifestyle. But to know that uh, indeed, uh, tobacco has no benefit, but to destroy, and then maim, you know, and to kill. 
So um, that's what I, I have to share from, from Ghana. Thank you. Thank you, LeBron. We had a uh, whole show dedicated a couple of weeks ago to that moment when Ronaldo, the famous football player, rejected Coke and, and the role that celebrities can play for positive or for ill. I love that you called out, um, you know, a celebrity that's that's using their uh, their status to promote poor health and, and calling them to count. But um, thank you, each of you who've come up to stage, especially to share a little bit of news of the week. And I love particularly hearing those colleagues who are sharing stories like LeBron's that we might not normally um, read about, you know, hear, hearing more local context, local news. But I'd like to start our main conversation today on NCDs and COVID. We have some fantastic experts, um, and I'm sure we have some in the audience. Um, I'd like to start us off by covering a bit about NCDs on the global stage and then get into some of the work happening in India and Ghana and how that relates. Um, I'd like to introduce uh, Nina Renshaw first. Nina Renshaw is um, at the global uh, is at the NCD Alliance and works on the global stage advancing um, NCD priorities. Nina, can you identify in a minute or two? for our audience, what we mean when we say NCDs and why is this even an important issue uh, on the global stage? Sure, happy to. Thanks, Steve. Um, I mean, we've already touched on every health story that we've we've talked about in the rants and raves, touches on NCDs, of course. And the, um, the upshot of all of that is that well over a quarter of the world's population lives with one or more NCDs. So we're talking about heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, dementia, cancer, stroke, kidney disease, lung disease, mental health conditions. It's it's a long list of a huge variety of conditions which we in the NCD Alliance um, represent and, of course, work with those communities. But these are collectively the biggest killers and the, the major cause of disability everywhere in the world. And every year, more than 40 million people die from an NCD. Um, I'm so glad that we're joined today by colleagues from India and Ghana because there's this, still this really dangerous misperception that these are rich world problems when really it's the opposite. 85% of deaths for, of uh, people under 70 from NCDs are in low and middle income countries. Um, it's also a huge issue when it comes to pushing people into poverty. So every year, just the fact of having an NCD pushes more than 100 million people around the world into extreme poverty. So this is because of the absence of public health care, having to pay for your own diagnosis, having to pay for your own treatment out of your own pockets. Um, I mean, there are families, of course, and that's familiar in the US as well. Unfortunately, families faced with like impossible choices between getting medical treatment for one member of the family or choosing which member of the family can have the treatment uh, or paying for education for your kids or eating healthy food. I mean, nobody should be faced with these kind of horrific dilemmas. Um, but that really illustrates how NCDs are a huge barrier to economic development everywhere in the world and how access to healthcare is a, is a major human rights issue in poorer countries, but even in some of the richer ones as well. Um, that misperception about NCDs affecting just older people and just richer countries, that's done untold damage over over decades. So as a result, NCDs are still almost entirely overlooked in global health and development priorities, and they get less than 2% of the global spending on, uh, on global development and health. Um, this all is me sounding very bleak again, but the good news around NCDs is that more than half of them are preventable. So most of them are caused by the same risk factors, the tobacco, the air pollution, alcohol, unhealthy food, lack of physical activity. And there's a, a huge um, toolkit of tried and tested measures um, to give people the best possible chances to live in good health and to head off NCDs by acting on those risk factors. So we're talking about smoke-free spaces. We're talking about supporting the cycling-friendly cities that you were talking about last week, health warnings on unhealthy products, taxes on unhealthy products. Um, bans on things like trans fats in foods, you know, the list goes on and these are all cost effective. They've been tried out in different places around the world and that menu of options is there for policymakers. Um, we're seeing right now, and, and Mila just alluded to it as well, this is also an equity issue. So the people living with NCDs are the people that have been shown to be much more vulnerable to COVID-19. 
And people are starting and, and kind of facing the virus from very different points because of their NCD status, which also reflects kind of health inequalities in society. So we've seen the poorer population groups, um, marginalized groups, you know, discriminated against groups have been worse hit by COVID-19 everywhere in the world. And this is also related to, to NCD status. So, I mean, if governments weren't getting the message before, which arguably they haven't been getting it loudly enough, we've got some really hard truths to face now about how we respond better to this pandemic, recover more quickly and act on NCDs to make sure that we're much better prepared for any health threats that we're going to face in the future. Thank you. And I love that you've brought us from understanding the problem more deeply to talking a little bit about solutions. And um, can I just ask you to expand a little bit on, um, you know, the how we mobilize at the global stage? I know that's where NCD Alliance is working. As you said, you know, we need greater you know, investment uh, dedicated to NCDs. It's overlooked. And you, you mentioned a number of the Best Buy policies like, you know, a graphic pack warnings or, or warnings on unhealthy commodities. What, how, how can we as public health professionals, how can we mobilize for greater action at the global level? I know we'll be touching on, on national action with, uh, with our other colleagues. Mm -hmm. and, and how has COVID changed the, the moment, momentum on the global stage? I mean, I guess in every walk of life, uh, COVID changes everything. And in terms of sort of the, the policy and advocacy environment that we're looking at, that, that we're all advocating in at the global level and at the national level as well, we mustn't um, move on too quickly from the lessons that we still need to learn. So, I mean, we're a year and a half into this pandemic and maybe it's easy to forget in some places, but this is far, far, far from over. I mean, there are, you know, the equitable access to vaccines has not manifested so far. There are countries who have barely received any doses. And, you know, there are many, many barriers to getting it to communities in all countries. And that's something that we definitely need to get to. So we mustn't think that because things are starting to return to something like normality in some places that, that we're done and we can just move on. We really have to face some of these tough lessons. And one of those is that this really isn't just a pandemic. So this is something you mentioned the Lancet earlier. This, there was a, a fantastic piece in the Lancet last year, which said, this is not a pandemic, it's a syndemic, meaning that it's two pandemics kind of grouping into one. It's health inequalities, it's NCDs, the non-communicable diseases, largely preventable, that were already highly prevalent in our societies. And then it's the, the virus, COVID, that comes on top of that. And when we've, you know, that mix has been absolutely deadly and, and debilitating for, for populations, for communities, for economies, and people living with NCDs have been absolutely at the epicenter of all of that. So, I mean, whilst the kind of headline death toll, and this is, you know, very, very harsh way to speak, but the headline death toll so far is around 4 million people, over 4 million people who have died directly of COVID. But the true toll is more like 7 million may even be something more like double the people that have died directly of COVID. And most of that difference is, again, people who are living with NCDs. So people living with NCDs make up most of the 4 million, but they definitely make up most of that 7 million because it's those people that were unable to access the healthcare that they needed during the pandemic. So this collateral damage in terms of people that couldn't access emergency care for symptoms of heart attacks or strokes for people who couldn't, you know, a lot of cancer screening programs were put on hold. So there are people who weren't able to have screening and diagnosis of cancers that by the time it's diagnosed may just be too late to treat. This is something that we're seeing in, in the UK. They think for every week that a cancer program is, uh, a screening program is postponed, you're likely to have an increase in mortality of two to 3,000 people. And we have postponed cancer screenings for months now. Um, or things like life-saving medicine supplies being disrupted. We saw insulin supplies being, um, yeah, basically not getting through to many, many communities in low- and middle-income countries. In India, for example, our um, colleagues within uh, civil society were actually doing door-to-door -door insulin delivery for people that needed people with diabetes to stay alive because they couldn't get out into their communities. Public transport wasn't working. Um, or they were just rightfully very frightened about going to healthcare facilities to pick up their prescriptions, for example. Um, so, you know, at every level, people with NCDs have been at the centre centre of this this pandemic. Um, 
but what we're seeing is there are ways out of this crisis and we've got to put NCDs at the center of that. Um, so some of the changes that we're going to be looking for, we're going to be looking for, you know, the way we make decisions or the way societies, politicians make decisions absolutely has to change to have a better mm -hmm. understanding that health is our bottom line. Uh, and this isn't just about ministries of health. This is about heads of state, heads of government, ministries of finance, talking more about disease prevention from the outset. A lot of this burden of disease, a lot of that burden of NCDs and COVID as a result could have been avoided had we kept our populations mm -hmm. in better health from the outset. This is what public health is all about. So we need to really shift and pivot to prevention. Now that we know that people living with NCDs were the most vulnerable, we have to also understand that the communities that had the highest levels of NCDs were the most vulnerable. And this unnecessarily so. You know, this put our health, our economies, our health systems at a level of risk that was, you know, largely preventable. So we need to factor right. this into our rankings of how we understand health security and preparedness in future and start acting immediately on those risk factors to head off those diseases but also make sure that people have the access that they need throughout pandemics to health systems and that we rebuild our health systems and get them working seamlessly and even better than mm -hmm. before as quickly as possible. Thank you. Yeah, I want to actually turn to Dr. Anupam Pathni. I know she'll, talk, she'll be talking a little bit on, on many of the issues you touched to very specifically about her work in India. Uh, Dr. Pathni is a clinician with over 20 years experience in public health, and she's been working with Resolve to Save Lives initiative, a vital strategy since August 2017, and closely involved with the Indian Hypertension Control Initiative. This is a, a multi-stakeholder collaborative project between the government of India, WHO, and the Resolve. And I know that um, among other things, among many things she's been working uh her project has been working to deliver hypertensive care to a country that has tens of millions of untreated cases um dr anupam can you share a little bit more about your project's approach to this monumental task um, that nina just outlaid of you know providing hypertensive care and and also speaking to prevention um share a little bit about your work thanks steve uh so, uh, like you mentioned, uh, India has a high burden of hypertension. Actually, uh, it is estimated that more than 200 million Indian adults have high blood pressure in the country, but uh, just less than 10% of them have uh, blood pressure under control. So, it really translates to a humongous number of people who have uncontrolled blood pressure. Uh, like you mentioned, I'm working with the India Hypertension Control Initiative, or IHCI for short. This was launched in 2017 with uh, the principal aim to reduce premature cardiovascular deaths by strengthening hypertension management and control at primary and secondary public health facilities. And it is basically anchored on the WHO Heart's technical package for cardiovascular disease management in primary health care. And we uh, have five core strategies, uh, have a simple standardized hypertension treatment protocol, which can be easily implemented at a primary health care level, uh, ensure a regular and uninterrupted supply of drugs, uh, whichever are selected in the protocol, uh, team-based care and task sharing and patient-centered services to uh, ensure quality of services and information systems to allow continuous real-time monitoring. So like I mentioned, the two of the core principles, patient-centered care and team-based care were essential and they also helped us drive adaptations to IHCI program during the COVID surges. Uh, even uh, last year and again the second surge which has just subsided recently. Uh, besides our work in ITI, which is uh, essentially treatment focused, we also work in the country on prevention. Uh, we are working in the area of nutrition. We are working with the government of India and supporting them uh, to uh, uh, supporting them for uh, policies on trans fat elimination, for monitoring uh, the uh, implementation of trans fat elimination, also for collecting evidence for sodium reduction in a country that could be translated into sodium uh, reduction policies in the near future. Uh, so essentially, this has been our work. And till date, uh, we have, under ITI, we have enrolled more than 1.4 million uh, people with uh, hypertension. So as soon as COVID started, uh, 
initial data from different countries, like whatever Nina mentioned during her talk. Initial data showed that patients with chronic diseases, especially cardiovascular diseases and diabetes, were at higher risk of becoming severely ill and dying from COVID-19. And we also realized there was a strict lockdown. There was disruption of um, essential health services. So to ensure continuation of essential health services, uh, uh, ICI pivoted very rapidly to adopt a three-pronged strategy of decentralized patient-centered care. This included longer prescriptions up to three months for patients with blood pressure under control, completed distribution of medicines through frontline health workers, and, and expanded use of telemedicine. Uh, we have project staff in the field who monitored uh, availability of medicine at health and wellness centers. These are the centers which are in the community closest to the patients, monitored delivery of uh, doorstep delivery, and also ensured, uh, uh, you know, we have a digital app which is being used. So it was rapidly adapted for telemedicine. This was used, uh, virtual trainings were conducted, and healthcare workers were uh, encouraged to use teleconsultation for uh, treatment of patients with hypertension. So while our focus was initially in hypertension, over a period of time, we've also added diabetes. And uh, so both delivery of medicines for hypertension and diabetes was monitored and data was collated and submitted to the government of India. So this is uh, what was done during the pandemic. That's incredible. I love hearing the story of on the ground adaptation, you know, adaptation and response. We've we we heard from Nina and from you about this incredible pressure that's uh, that COVID is creating and that the, the threat of leaving people with untreated NCDs uh, and and the potential extra wave of death and disability and disease that causes. LeBron, I want to bring you on this theme too. I know you have um, you can share the Ghanaian context. Do does what um, Nina and Anupam. Are what they're sharing ring true in Ghana? I know that the Ghana NCD Alliance has been on the verge of rolling out a, a new national plan. Can you describe a little bit about what's the context there? What's what's what are you hoping to achieve with the national plan on NCDs, and how has COVID changed its its rollout? Right. Um, thank you very much. Um, I, I share 100% with, uh, with the view expressed by my other colleagues. Um, and to say that, uh, yes, indeed, um, uh, when, when you look at um, the context um, with respect to NCDC in, in, in Ghana, um, you know, per the WHO, you know, NCD monitor, uh, 94,400 people die annually from non-communicable diseases. So obviously, um, for me, I always say that NCD is a pandemic, you know, even before the, um, the, the COVID-19 came. And you know, sometimes policymakers have problems when you, you mention the fact that uh, NCD, I mean, the death to respect to NCD being the leading cause of death in the world, you know, it's a pandemic. They have, they have issue with it. But um, I think uh, we've, we've all seen um, the, the trajectory, how things are going. Now, so um, in 2017, um, Ghana, you know, um, started, you know, um, reviewing or looking at, you know, um, coming out with a new policy uh, on non-communicable diseases. And I mean 2017. And to date, we haven't had, you know, um, a national policy um, to, to, to chart the, the course or to lead us or to give us a direction of, uh, so how the country is, is going with respect to non-communicable diseases, you know. But, um, um, you know, somewhere around 2020, and, um, and, and when the pandemic started, the whole, I mean, issues around the, the policy was stopped. And it stopped um, basically because um, I think government felt that there's a need to, you know, include or probably study the, the issues because uh, research uh, from all quarters points to the fact that uh, most people who were, you know, dying or, I mean, severely ill with respect to, non respect to the COVID-19 are people living with non-communicable diseases. So, um, so for that matter, we thought that that explanation was, was quite right. Currently, the document is, um, is a cabinet. Um, but we thought that uh, it, it's taking too, too long a time for, for it to come out. Officially, uh, for I mean, for us to see what the the actual content is, but I can see that um, um, civil society like Ghana NCD Alliance, you know, contributed immensely 
by reviewing the documents, sending out proposals to strengthen um, the, you know, the policy. So um, we, we're currently waiting, you know, and let me also emphasize the fact that uh, we, were, we were a bit worried that since 2017, you know, the document did not see the, the, the light of day. Um, but um, when COVID-19 strike and, um, and then government says that they want to see how they can, you know, incorporate some, um, some of the issue respect to COVID-19 within the document so that it, it's more holistic, we felt that, uh, well, it, I mean, of course, then it's, it's, it's an opportunity to have um, a very holistic document that look at the, the connection between um, NCDs, COVID-19, and then universal health coverage. So on, on that note, we thought that it, it, it's, it's quite um, okay and sound a bit um, okay, okay to us. Um, but um, we, are, we are still not relenting. We are still putting pressure on government to quickly, and as, as much of agency, you know, um, come out to... to officially to launch the document. Hi there, everybody. My name is Rebecca Pearl, and um, I work with Vital Strategies on NCDs, actually, and tobacco control. And I have a question for the panel, and um, maybe, Nina, you could start us off, and if others want to um, jump in, too. But, you know, we've been talking a lot about NCDs and COVID and all the links, and, Nina, you even mentioned this idea of a systemic situation, a syndemic situation, and I just, I guess I'm playing devil's advocate here a little bit, but I'd love to hear... From the panel, um, is it given COVID and, and everything we've learned here about how these things are connected? Is it does it still is it still a good idea to think about these things in separate categories? You know, WHO is kind of set up so that there's NCDs, uh, um, you know, injuries and 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 chronic diseases, and then there's you know infectious diseases like. COVID and TB, and I guess I, my question is, does this, is this still the way to organize us, or is there a new, better way to reimagine public health? I, uh, if I may, Rebecca, I really appreciate that question. This is something that is, um, yeah, just so present for us at the moment, uh, and I, I think I absolutely agree with the point that you're making, and I do hope that COVID-19 and this pandemic makes the point that we can't keep operating in these distinct silos um, for global health. As you say, kind of the structures set up respond to communicable diseases, infectious diseases, separately from maternal and child health, separately from NCDs. Uh, and the kind of global health donors tend to follow that pattern as well. You think about there are specific um, funds like the global funds set up to respond to the Millennium Development Goals, which largely have a focus on HIV, TB, maternal and child health, which is not to say that we should focus on those less or that funds should be taken away from those at all. But, you know, just as an illustration, NCDs cut across all of that, you know, as, as people living with HIV, life expectancy is, is now almost on a par with uh, HIV negative people, but people living with HIV are at much higher risk from cardiovascular diseases, from several kinds of cancer, or um, there's also a, like a bi-directional relationship between tuberculosis and diabetes, for example. Um, and all of those communities, you know, there's a special consideration that needs to go into their mental health at the same time. So we definitely see a need that's kind of crystallized by COVID to start busting these silos and working together and making sure that the funds are available as well in your HIV response to make sure that you're also doing screening for things like cervical cancer. There's a few countries, Eswatini, for example, in Africa is already doing this well. Um, or there's countries, for example, that in their COVID response have been started building on the, the massive strides forward that we're making and collecting real-time health data that Anupam just mentioned. Bangladesh, for example, is using their data collections uh, system, which has been developed to respond to COVID, also to collect cancer screening data. So there's actually opportunities around the infrastructure and the funds that are being mobilized for the COVID response to make sure that NCDs are integrated in there as well, and that a lot of these good practice changes that we're seeing, whether that's around data, whether that's really practical stuff around longer prescriptions, for example, being able to get several months worth of medication at the same time, um, smarter triaging of patients to, you know, manage the flows and get make sure that everybody that needs to see health professionals can or, or um, more resources for community health workers that people can go into people's local communities rather than having people that need to seek health treatment travel for several hours. Like, there's so many smart things that we can be learning from COVID that we can just be doing better as we build back. 
a lot of that will require kind of new resources and those resources sticking. Um, but some of it is is very sensible stuff. So think about um, there are communities, many, many communities in low middle income countries that have never been reached via cold chain for medicines before supply chains that can handle things that need to be stored at low temperatures. Every community is now going to have to be reached via for the COVID vaccine rollout. It's going to have to reach effectively everybody in the world at some point or other. And let's hope it's sooner rather than later. But once cold chain, chain reaches those communities, let's keep it there. Let's make sure it sticks, for example, to make sure that um, life-saving medications like insulin can now reach these communities as well. So uh, I'm really grateful for the question. And I absolutely agree. It's time to start thinking in a more holistic way about we, how we respond to people's health. I mean, it's at the end of the day, the same people are very likely to live with multiple health conditions. And it's not a very fair way to respond if they can get access to care and medication for one of them, but they die of something else very prematurely because the NCD medication or the NCD care is not there. So I'm, thank you for asking, Rebecca. I love that question, too. I, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Paula Johns, who's a, uh, many of you likely know, she's a public health act activist and uh, Brazilian uh, advocate, or advocate in Brazil, a global advocate. She talked about uh, a little bit about how we, uh, in very big picture, we have to start I'm paraphrasing here, but we have to start thinking about uh, global public goods rather than you know, intervening when there's a problem. All too often we say, oh, this is a problem now, how do we fix it? And, and we don't ask ahead of time, you know, how is this product, this process, this system, how is it benefiting health? How is it benefiting climate? We really need to think, uh, and I think COVID really has challenged us to think more about equity, more about prevention, more about what kind of future we want to live in rather than just adapting what's going on. Anupam, what uh, what Nina was talking about sparked a memory of something you said in your work, which is that you had started, your work started in hypertension, but then now has expanded using the same tools to also address patients with diabetes. And the suggestion is that, that maybe because of COVID or, um, you know, because you've set up very effective systems to treat people that have gone without treatment before, then there might be further extensions of the kinds of relationships and systems that, that you're setting up um, based around hypertension. Do you, do you think that's true? Uh, you're right, Steve. Um, we started with hypertension because it was an easier uh, uh, NCD to tackle at a primary healthcare level. Uh, it doesn't require much investigations. The infrastructure in uh, many of our rural areas is really poor. Many places, uh, there's a shortage of human resources. Uh, so uh, hypertension was easy, plus it is the one which causes the most mortality from NCDs. But having implemented for more than a year, we did set uh, establish good systems, good uh, like our tools, which were very effective for hypertension. We improved uh, procurement systems for hypertension medicines. We established protocols for hypertension, which the states were also looking at with interest. Our information systems for collecting data is, like I mentioned, is real time. They have dashboards, which can help for uh, patient management as well as for program monitoring uh, from uh, the health facility level to district and even state program managers or at the national level can see the uh, dashboards in real time. And so over a period of time, once we had streamlined the systems within hypertension, there was an increasing interest to also include diabetes. And uh, India is a big country, and each state has got differential burden of diseases. And we also realized that in some states, a lot of our patients had comorbidities like diabetes. So there was no point just looking at one, uh, one NCD in a silo. And the most common, if you look at data, the most common NCDs at the primary healthcare level uh, in terms of the volume of patients is hypertension and diabetes. So we are now gradually, we have improvised our information systems to collect diabetes uh, information as well. We are supporting the states to develop diabetes protocols. We are also supporting the states in procurement of diabetes medicines and the logistics planning. And plus the data has been collated and reported uh, on a regular basis. Uh, we are also uh, supporting the training of the human resources. So as we move on, the diabetes component is also getting strengthened. It's interesting. I'm trying to synthesize here a little bit about what are the ingredients 
for success, to have, to respond to this incredible moment where COVID has challenged us to look differently at NCDs, to respond with greater urgency to the NCD uh, epidemic, which has left us so vulnerable uh, to COVID and will leave us. And some of the elements we've heard, we just heard from Anupam about the importance of data and data sources and you know how her project has really been led by the data you know that hypertension in these rural areas is a leading killer we heard from labram about the importance of community mobilizing um, and from nina about you know the having these policy packages um, and all of you have touched on the importance of political will, you know, in order to implement the packages, we need resources in order to, you know, and in order to collect the data, we need um, governments to to agree to collect. So I'd just like to ask an open-ended question about political will, um, which is, what are the arguments that have seen, that have, each of you have seen work? What convinces journalists, influencers, policymakers to take greater action on NCDs um, now and in the future? I could come in with a couple of thoughts, if I may, Steve. Sure. I think uh, this is not something that like UN institutions can do, but this is something that that civil society can do, and and the kind of academic academics can do, and that's kind of rankings around. Health security. So in 2019, there was already a global health security index, which ironically told us that the US and the United Kingdom were the best prepared countries in the world for an epidemic. Um, obviously, that's been completely turned on its head because some of these are some of the absolute worst performers during the pandemic. And some of the countries that were not ranked very highly, uh, New Zealand, for example, wasn't ranked very highly in preparation for an epidemic or um, Taiwan, Thailand, Vietnam, Rwanda were not ranked very well, but have all done far, far better. Um, so I think one thing that we need to do is make sure that we're properly measuring what matters in these kind of rankings. Um, clearly, what we missed in 2019 was the, well, for one, the kind of willingness to act on the science, which has been a big barrier in uh, the US and the UK, but the other one is acting on the prevalence of non-communicable diseases, which make your populations and your communities much more vulnerable. This is something that New Zealand has done over the years. Taiwan, Thailand, Vietnam, Rwanda have, were definitely already doing, which stood them in better stead. So we would really like to see those rankings be much more reflective of kind of underlying population health. If you have, if you're kind of uh, relatively negligent as a government in that you allow, you know, a huge amount of your population to be using tobacco regularly, for example, or your um, food system is very unhealthy and very obesogenic, for example, that should be coming up in these rankings so that you, you can't appear to be better prepared than you really are. You have to recognize that, you know, uh, having weak public health policies and weak prevention policies puts you at vulnerability of these kind of health threats and that's not just epidemics and infectious diseases but this is other health threats that we might look at down the line as well things like anti antibiotic resistance for example so if one of those is to kind of factor this in transparency and make it an aspect that you know governments do actually want to compete on um and another one is start listening better to the communities when we're preparing decisions that are relevant to our health so let's listen to the people that are most affected by health decisions I mean, obviously, from our perspective, we're thinking of people living with NCDs. Um, so we have an initiative called Our Views, Our Voices, which is all about, you know, uh, people living with NCDs, having the, having the tools and having the opportunities to become advocates, to talk to the media, to talk to their policymakers, uh, and to get the word out. It's, we're taking inspiration, of course, from the HIV community who have done this better than anybody, nothing about us without us. And this is a message we need to get across to our policymakers when it comes to non-communicable diseases as well. So we're developing and we'll be launching later this year uh, a charter of meaningful engagement for people living with NCDs that we're looking for organisations to sign up to and pledge basically to listen and act on that expertise that comes from people living with NCDs and the broader community around these decisions that affect us so greatly. So, um, yeah, those are two things that we would suggest. Factor NCDs and population health into your health security rankings. These are, this is something that, you know, leaders in every country are going to be looking at 
um, very, very hard for years to come. And also let's, for goodness sake, start listening to the community and all the expertise that they have. I think that's great. As a communications professional, I'm obsessed with the, you know, how do we make these issues more salient to the public, to policymakers, to journalists, the, the people who control or, or, or own our social agenda. And I, I love that you brought up, you know, uh, empowering people with NCDs to tell their own stories in ways that, that make NCDs a more salient issue. Labram, I was Curious, I know that you said that you've made recent progress on bringing the national NCD plan back into the limelight in Ghana. Are you using, is this a strategy you've used to have people with NCDs speak about their experience, uh, the, the importance of preventive care or the importance of treatment? Has that factored in your, in your advocacy strategy in Ghana? Yes, uh, thank you very much. Um, I'm happy uh, Nina touched about some of some of these issues uh, at the global level. So, at the national level, yes, indeed, uh, we have we have been part of the Albis Voices Initiative, and um, let me say that it, it's been extremely, you know, very helpful um, because we have worked uh, in building the capacity of people living with non-communicable diseases. You know, so that they can they can do their own advocacy front and then you know engage policymakers. And um, let me say that uh, in most of meetings, uh, policy discussions that we've had with policymakers, we've had you know um, people living with NCD uh, being part of this discussion. And um, you know when they begin to speak, you know it sends some kind of you know, message to uh, policymakers because you know they, they they feel the burden, they they know what they go through in terms of uh, the cost of treatment, the I mean how. Um, I mean, accessibility and then affordability of medicine and, and, and everything around them. So it, it's been extremely important working with them in this light. Now, so we continue to build their capacity. Um, currently, we have quite a number of um, network that we have created in, the, um, in I think, about six regions um, in Ghana. So what we are doing is that we are mobilizing um, people living with NCDs from, I mean, from all from, from various, you know, this condition. You know, building their capacity, strengthening them so that they can also join. I mean, this uh, national and global advocacy effort. Now, so with respect to the the NCD policy I mentioned, uh, the document currently is 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 with is with cabinet. It's not yet out, but I can say specifically that um, we have made some proposal for government to consider. You know, including people living with NCDs in policy making processes and then decision making. So that um, they don't sit at table and then you know I mean discuss and then come and then you know um, you know just 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 bump it on us you know um, with this kind of firefighting approaching where policies are done at national level and then once it's done they only come for consultation. We want the, we, we we are training people in NCD to demand for you know accountability, demand for a seat. I mean in government, especially when. And policies are, are formulated with respect to you know um, issues that affect them directly or indirectly. So um, for that matter, proposals have been sent. We are waiting for the document to be out to see if indeed um, those um, documents have um, those proposals have been encapsulated within the policy framework. Now, not not, not only that, um, even uh, on outreaches when we move out to the community level to embark on community sensitization. We, we 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 allow people in NCD to front some of these discussions, you know, urging people to you know to speak out about their their issues when when they visit the facility, you know, strengthening them so at least we can we can all you know strengthen the the, the healthcare system that we all wish you know to have. Thank you. That's great to hear that. Um... The, the tactics, the strategies that you're using to, to generate momentum and political will in Ghana. I guess um, I wanted to note that in 2010, uh, our my organization, Vital Strategies, then World Lung Foundation, um, was involved in the, the 2010 high-level meeting on NCDs, which was this watershed moment. And it seemed at the time, to me at least, that there was a question even on the table, would these disparate groups, cancer groups, diabetes, heart, lung, be able to come together and create kind of a cohesive moment. And it, it seems now, 10 years later, there is a, a, a substantial 
um, and important NCD uh, movement. Um, and then, but we seem to be at this new watershed moment driven by COVID. And I just wanted to invite you to imagine or reimagine if in five years, what would you what would you like to see have happened? What would you like to see happen on the global level or within India or within Ghana um, in response to the the pressures and the horrors of that the pandemic we're living through? I'd, I'd be happy to have any of you touch on what should the what should the future look like? Yeah, uh, what we have realized during our work during the COVID pandemic is that primary health care has to be at the center of a public health response. And I know that people have been talking, but it's very difficult to operationalize a real comprehensive primary health care. This means designing patient-friendly care models, uh, which are differentiated and which uh, include differentiated patient-centered service delivery models that support decentralized care and drive rapid adaptive changes. And this is what uh, we sort of followed during the pandemic. And this has also helped us deliver results. But even it has a lot of promise even post uh, the epidemic, uh, post pandemic, and to help us, uh, the, you know, uh, tagline of build back better if we have strong primary healthcare systems and also parallelly work with the, on the nutrition agenda to build resilient communities to decrease the burden of NCDs. So that's what we are, that's, you know, that's the vision, I would say. Thank you. Thank you. LeBron. Yes. So um, if I, I don't know how to answer this question, but um, well, I personally, I, I would like to see a future that, you know, that, um, that, you know, I mean, that is implementing, you know, um, non-communicable disease with respect to ensuring that uh, there's minimal or, um, you know, reduction in out-of-pocket expenses. But um, it, it's, it's, it's not, uh, we're not seeing much, you know, progress with respect to that, especially um, in my part of the world where, you know, um, simple strips, you know, glucometers are virtually, I mean, not available. You know, people are still queuing at the at the bigger hospitals. Though we have a very, you know, a very, you know, um, a very, you know, I mean, nice, you know, structures within the community. I mean, level where um, government is encouraging people to access, you know, the the community facilities, but because of lack of you know, um, access to basic apparatus, BP machines, glucometers, the instances where the glucometers machines are there, but uh, the strips are, are virtually not available. The instances where the strips are there, and I mean the, and then the cost, you know, you have to buy, you know, um, some of some of these things. And the fact that, you know, unhealthy, you know, herbal medications, you know, unapproved herbal medication is also, I mean, on, on the increase, on the rise, because people would, would prefer, you know, going for um, unapproved medical, medic, um, unapproved, you know, medications. I mean, as compared to, you know, the, I mean, the, the, the normal medication that we all know, all because of lack of trust, I mean, of the, of the health facility, because sometimes it's quite a distance, you know, to travel from where you are to, you know, to, to the healthcare facility. And the fact that the community health workers too are not so much motivated to, you know, to go to the community level to, you know, to screen and to avoid this late, you know, um, diagnosis, I mean, increasing our disease burden. So the, the issue, we, we, we look forward to, you know, to a better, you know, a better uh, future respect to, um, I mean, the care support, and then also strengthening the healthcare system. Government is making a lot of, you know, uh, progress, you know, because, so for instance, I mean, during the COVID-19, I mean, pandemic, government announced the, you know, the the, the building of 100 and 111 hospitals in all the districts, you know, all the districts, all the regions. But unfortunately, um, uh, the point is this, uh, once we are able to do this, in most, mostly, these are political talks. We are you know, putting pressure on government to ensure that it's, it's you know, it's, it actually, you know, um, does whatever he or she has promised to do. But the point is this, sometimes you have the structure there and the, the, what, what makes up, you know, the hospital is virtually not available. So we, we are hoping that uh, um, some of these things, um, with, the, with the support of the media, people live with NCDs who are now strong enough to advocate for themselves and on behalf of others, as well as the media, civil society organizations, 
and we won't be able to make some impact, but um, probably it's going to be on a slow, slow pace um, because of what we are seeing as far as um, issues of non-communicable disease and how it has been prioritized um, by, by government and policymakers. Nina, I think that uh, you'll probably have the final comment. We'll go a few minutes over, but take we, we'd love to hear your vision. What's what in your if you could major, raise a magic wand, where would we be in five years? Um, thanks, thanks for the question. I mean, I would echo everything that Anupam and Labram have said for sure. I think, I mean, the way you framed the question was really interesting. It is it's ten years now since the NTV community kind of first got together for that UN high-level meeting. So heads of state were brought together. And I think it's gone from strength to strength. I mean, you look at the membership of the NCD Alliance um, and the number of national and regional alliances that have sprang up all around the world. And there's, you know, there's so much energy there in the community, which is amazing. So much energy from, from advocates and from people living with so much appetite to become advocates. And you're totally right about COVID. That's also brought a new appetite from, from policymakers and from the media to hear from us and to hear from people living with NCDs about what they're facing. So that kind of common external threat has really pulled the community together. And I, I hope um, change the perceptions, change the understanding in kind of the minds of the general public about what NCDs are and that they're, you know, there's some awareness that this is actually us. This is our families. This is our friends. This is our communities. NCDs touch every one of our lives at some point. So there's a real need to, you know, put these at the center of how we build back better and build back fairer, especially from here. Um, I think with policymakers, we do feel them kind of increasingly turning to the community and asking, okay, what, what do you want in the, in the same way that you're doing? What's your vision? So I think three things. I think listening to the community about their healthcare needs um, and also just involving the community from the outset in that decision-making in future, whether it's the design of kind of health programs, the design of health systems, as we were saying before, kind of integrated care that respond if people have a number of different conditions, for example, that you can seek your cancer treatment at the same time that you're seeking your diabetes treatment, or you can seek mental health care when you're seeking, you know, tuberculosis treatment, whatever. Um, more integrated care systems that respond to what, you know, people and communities actually need. So, and the investment in, in primary health care and kind of community health care that Anu Pat was talking about, fully agree with that point. The pivot to prevention that we were talking about before and just keeping people in better health throughout their whole lives, kind of from, you know, conception through to the end of life. There's so much more that we could be doing to keep people in better health throughout. Um, and... Yes, I guess thirdly, sort of decision-making, recognising that the bottom line maybe isn't the most important um, thing. You know, the bottom line, the one that we thought it was, the stakeholders that uh, policymakers have been listening to all these years, they've been afraid to take decisions that affect powerful industry interests like the tobacco industry or like the junk food industry or like the fossil fuels industry. You know, if our real bottom line is the health of our populations, the health and well-being and happiness of our populations, then we need to, you know, make sure that we change who politicians are listening to when they make those decisions. So exactly as both Labram and Anupam have been saying as well, fully, fully agree with that. So, yeah, if we dare hope for what five years time looks like, it's uh, something along those lines. Thank you. And I'm going to, I could, you touched on so many, I have, 50 other questions, but we have to close the room. And I feel really privileged to have shared the stage with each of you. We, I can't even believe the number of issues we touched on in just an hour. But I love that um, this group represents, you know, the a perspective on global policy. We talked about national advocacy, civil society. We talked about implementation and primary care, all these um, perspectives that we need to really be able to pull in. We talked about unsiloing NCDs as well as what we need to do within the NCD movement. Uh, thank you all. I hope we can have you back on the Public Health Power Hour in the future. And I just want to close out this week with something each of us, each person in the audience can do to advance public health. Um, we have fantastic discussions coming up. As I said, next week we'll be talking about how big oil, tobacco, and food use advertising harm, hide the harms that they cause and how creatives are fighting back. 
And for this week, I'd like to encourage you to commit to further action on NCDs. This is something you can do this week. Um, you can go to actonncds.org. I know this is an initiative supported by each of our groups and by the NCD Alliance in particular. And upcoming is the Global Week for Action on NCDs, September 6th through 21st. I think it's probably no coincidence that's happening just before the UN General Assembly. Um, but it's definitely to make progress on NCDs is going to take concerted action um, and some dedication from each of us. Once again, I'd like to thank each of you for joining the Public Health Power Hour and have a great day and hopefully see you next week. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Public Health Power Hour. We hold these live conversations several times a month on Twitter Spaces. Follow us at VitalStrat on Twitter to join the conversation in real time. We'd love to see you there. To learn more about how Vital Strategies is reimagining public health, go to www.vitalstrategies.org. I'm Steve Hamill with Vital Strategies. Join us next time on the Public Health Power Hour.